1891. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was looking to expand his writing repertoire by writing some short stories to obtain some extra money. He went and submitted two short story submissions to a brand new magazine that had just launched earlier that year, a magazine called The Strand. Editor Herbert Greenhoff Smith knew he needed to get his new magazine off the ground, and he thought that Doyle's stories were the perfect choice. Welcome back to Cases of Continuity, where we are continuing our journey through the original Sherlock Holmes books written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. My name is Ryan, I am your host, and today we're headed into the first short stories about Sherlock Holmes ever written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The first 12 Sherlock Holmes short stories were collected into one book called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Therefore, we'll be covering those first four short stories today in part one of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. When we last left off, Doyle had published a second Sherlock Holmes book, and it had some moderate success, but still wasn't the most successful thing. Things were about to change. Sherlock Holmes's popularity as a character would increase significantly with the publication of monthly short stories. And that's exactly what Doyle was going to do when he was writing for the brand new Strand magazine. Smith, the publisher of the magazine, saw Doyle's true potential and proclaimed him to be the best writer of short stories since Edgar Allan Poe, and perhaps even beyond Poe. He brought Doyle in and offered to pay him 30 guineas per story. It was decided that Doyle would write one short story about Sherlock Holmes each month for the year of 1891 leading into 1892, starting in July of the first year and then ending in June of the second year. Doyle accepted as he was quite concerned about his once again failing medical practice at the time. Sidney Paget was brought on as well. He was in charge of the illustrations for each of those 12 short stories, and those illustrations are now iconic and truly formed the idea of what Sherlock Holmes actually looks like. Although these short stories would eventually be compiled as the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, it was in their original run in the Strand that they became the most popular and the most famous. The first of these short stories was A Scandal in Bohemia, and it was published in July of 1891. We'll talk a bit about when each of these stories takes place, because they don't quite take place in chronological order based on when they were published. Sherlock Holmes scholar William Baring Gould has determined a most likely chronology of each of the Sherlock Holmes publications, be them novels or short stories. Now, for the first two Sherlock Holmes books that we had, they were published in the order that they supposedly occurred. A Study in Scarlet is thought to have occurred in early March of 1881, the first case that Watson and Holmes work on together. Well, The Sign of Four occurs many years later, in mid-September of 1888. A Scandal in Bohemia, like many of the short stories that we'll see in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, takes place in between those. This one specifically takes place in late May of 1887. It's thought by Gould that Watson was with his first wife at the time, and Baring Gould has decided, based on going through these different pieces of literature, that Watson was actually married three times. His marriage to Mary Morstan, which we read about in The Sign of Four during our last episode, was that second marriage. The Scandal in Bohemia short story would be adapted multiple times, it would be referenced in Basil Rathbone's 1946 film, Dressed to Kill, but itself would be adapted 
1921 silent film, in the 1951 Alan Wheatley television series, in a 1983 Soviet show, it would be the first episode of the Jeremy Brett television show, it would even be adapted in the children's television program Wishbone, as well as in the BBC Sherlock television show, an episode called A Scandal in Belgravia, and even in a Japanese puppet show version. Like all of these short stories that we'll talk about, there have been a number of radio versions as well, which are quite popular in the United Kingdom. Now, we're going to be doing this episode and all the episodes about these short stories a little bit differently than all of our previous cases of continuity episodes. I'm going to be talking about the history and the context for each of these short stories individually. So, I'll talk about the history, then I'll talk about the story for each of them, because they really are quite separate from each other. So let's talk about the story within A Scandal in Bohemia. In the story, Watson ends up deciding to visit Sherlock Holmes, and at this time, Holmes is expecting a bit of a mysterious guest. The guest arrives, and we find out that he is the King of Bohemia. He's about to be married. However, he had written some very passionate letters to a woman named Irene Adler. Letters that could be quite compromising and letters that the king would quite like back. Holmes is on the case in an attempt to obtain those letters for the king. He disguises himself and starts to trail Irene Adler, only to discover that she has been married. Holmes in disguise becomes the witness. Holmes then has a plan, now that he knows her schedule, in order to determine where the letters are being kept. He disguises himself as a priest and works with Watson to make it appear that there is a fake fire inside Irene Adler's apartment. Holmes acts as though he ends up being beat up by men on the street and has Irene Adler take him inside only for Watson to throw a smoke bomb in the middle of Irene Adler's room. From there, Adler goes to a safe where it's thought she keeps her most prized possession. Thus, Holmes determines that that is where the letters are kept. However, the next day, when Watson and Holmes go to try to get the letters back, they find that Irene Adler has departed with the letters forever. In fact, Adler herself is quite smart. She was able to determine that Sherlock Holmes was, in fact, the one that the king had hired for this job, and she herself disguised herself and trailed Sherlock Holmes the following day and sent a final message to her. However, it's also worth noting that Adler decided she was not going to use the letters as blackmail against the king now that she was married and happy and satisfied with her life. The king's quite overjoyed at this and fully trusts her and is very thankful to Holmes. Meanwhile, Holmes chooses to keep the photograph out of respect for Irene Adler, a photograph that she had initially left to the king. It's thought that, according to Watson at least, Holmes's defeat at the hands of Irene Adler made him greatly respect women in general more, but especially Irene Adler, somebody that Holmes would talk about multiple times in the years following his defeat in a scandal in Bohemia. As far as pieces of continuity go in this story, we hear about Watson's marriage, albeit his first marriage. A study in Scarlet is directly named in the story. It's referenced by Watson when thinking about Holmes's previous successes. It's also noted that Holmes and Watson have been tied to two years' secrecy on the story. They're not allowed to talk about the events that occurred because of how important they are to different political figures, such as the King of Bohemia, which also helps to show that the story likely occurred in 1887, being published in 1891, more than two years had passed then. As far as my opinion on the story, it's a bit of a weird one. It's not a mystery, which is not what we tend to expect for Sherlock Holmes. 
And so the fact that it's not a mystery very much caught me off guard the first time that I read it. It's intriguing. It's certainly an adventure, and it fits with the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. But it's not what I usually look for when I'm going to read a Sherlock Holmes story. So for that, it's not my favorite. But it's different, and I respect it for that. And Irene Adler is a fascinating character. There's a reason that she's one of those Sherlock Holmes characters that has really stood the test of time. Now we head to the next short story, The Red-Headed League. This will be published the following month, in August of 1881. It would be adapted multiple times as well, and you're going to see as we go through these different adaptations that a lot of these were different television or film series that essentially just went through each of the adventures of Sherlock Holmes to adapt them. Another silent film in 1921 in that same film series, the Wheatley 1951 TV show, the 1965 Douglas Wilmer television show also adapted The Red-Headed League, as did the 1985 Brett version, the Japanese puppet version, and many different radio. The story, according to William Baring Gould, takes place in late October of 1887. So this one takes place within the same year as A Scandal in Bohemia, but later in that year, with Watson still being with his first wife. I think the most interesting part about the history for this short story that I found was that this short story actually inspired a real-life robbery, the Baker Street robbery, incidentally, of 1971, where a group of thieves did exactly what the thieves in the short story did. They dug a tunnel from a building to a bank and ended up robbing it, except the thieves in real life were actually successful. However, the thieves themselves were ultimately caught, thrown in jail, but not all the money that was stolen was recovered, so that's still out there somewhere all these years later, which is quite interesting. Suppose that just goes to show the power of literature. In this short story, Watson is once again visiting Holmes. Holmes has a new client as Watson walks in, a man named Jabez Wilson. He has red hair, and he's a pawnbroker. His assistant, a man by the name of Vincent Spaulding, made him aware of a newspaper ad to join the Red-Headed League. Wilson decides to check out what this league is, as they're offering money for very little work. He's paid to copy the encyclopedia for a set number of hours each day. But then he shows up one day and sees a sign that the Red-Headed League has been dissolved. He has no idea what this means, and to make matters worse, the landlord of the building where Wilson was working has never heard of the Red-Headed League at all. Wilson's not too terribly cut up by the situation. After all, it was just, he didn't lose any money in the process. He was simply losing the ability to gain more money. He's curious about the situation and has brought it to Holmes' attention, and Holmes is quite interested. He starts to investigate and ends up heading to Wilson's place of work. He knocks on the door and meets Vincent Spaulding. He takes note of Spaulding's knees and sees that there's quite a bit of dirt and wear and tear on them. He also examines the area around Wilson's house. He notes that a bank is nearby. He tells Watson to meet him that night and with the assistance of a police officer from Scotland Yard and with the president of the bank. They stay in the bank basement, stake it out, and then they see two men come through a hole in the wall that's been made, Spaulding and a high-profile criminal named John Clay, both of whom are quickly caught by the police officer, and Watson is quite proud of his good friend Sherlock Holmes for determining that these individuals were working to get Wilson out of the way for a set amount of time each day so that they could create a tunnel from his house to 
the very close bank nearby and they could attempt to then steal the money from it. There's not too much to see here. There's a reason why this one hasn't been adapted as much. It's a very simple and straightforward plot, and I think the history behind it with that real-life robbery is a little bit more interesting, in my opinion. As far as some continuity goes, though, things are quite interesting. First and foremost, there's a reference to Mary Sutherland, who had been involved in a case that had been solved by Holmes and Watson just a few days prior. Mary Sutherland we actually haven't met yet. We're going to meet her in our next short story. So clearly our next short story in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes takes place directly before the Red-Headed League. There's also a reference to Holmes' success with the Sholto murder and the Agra treasure, the events that occurred in The Sign of Four. However, The Sign of Four has been determined by William Baring Gould to take place after the Red-Headed League. What does this mean from a sense of continuity? I think it's likely, at least if we're trying to explain it from a continuity standpoint, that Watson is getting a little bit confused in some of his accounts, as all of these are supposedly written by Watson and from his point of view. My thought process is that Watson is confusing his timelines a bit and putting in information from events that he's already written about, even though they hadn't actually occurred when these new events that Watson's writing about initially happened. So I think that's quite an interesting thing to add in. Our third short story in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes is entitled A Case of Identity, and this was, as one might expect, published in September of 1891. There were, of course, many adaptations, including the 1921 silent film version, a 2001 television show called Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd Century, that's an interesting one, and the BBC Sherlock television show episode, The Empty Hearse. There was also the Japanese puppet version and many radio adaptations. This one takes place in mid-October of 1887, as we mentioned just before the Red-Headed League takes place. We meet Mary Sutherland, who gets a certain amount of money each year from a family member who lives in New Zealand. She lives with her mother and her stepfather and pays that money to them as rent each month. One day, though, her controlling stepfather went out of town. Mary, desperate to try to meet somebody to fall in love with, goes to a party where she meets a man named Hosmer Angel. They start dating, they become quite close, and decide to get married. Interestingly, Hosmer never gives Mary the location of his office, only the street that he works on. Mary's stepfather seems to be a little bit against the marriage, and a little bit controlling, but ultimately more open to it than Mary would have otherwise expected. It's also worth noting that her stepfather is only five years older than her, and 15 years younger than her mother. However, on the day of their wedding, Mary and Hosmer head to the cathedral in order for the wedding ceremony to take place. They go there in separate carriages, Hosmer's idea, when they arrive. Mary gets out of her carriage, she goes to Hosmer's carriage, he's gone. Holmes is on the case. The only pieces of information that Mary has are some letters from Hosmer. They were written by typewriter, and even the signature was typewritten. Furthermore, Mary's description of Hosmer is a little bit suspicious. A lot of facial hair and glasses, things hiding his face. Holmes figures things out quite quickly. He sends a letter to the stepfather of Mary, gets a typewritten letter back, and then decides to schedule a meeting with the stepfather. He determines that the stepfather had disguised himself as Hosmer Angel, then forced Mary to make a commitment to Hosmer, only to disappear in the process, forcing Mary to stay with him and her mother, and allowing them to continue to receive the money from her. Holmes is able to prove this by the obvious disguise that the stepfather had put on, especially due to Mary's nearsightedness. On top of that, the typewriter's ways of 
having certain letters drift off in certain places was identical between the letters that Mary had received from Hosmer and the letter that Holmes had received from the man. This wasn't against the law, and there was no way he could be caught for any of this, but Holmes was extremely angry at him and stated that he was an absolutely horrible person and drives him from his office. Some of the most emotion we've ever seen from Sherlock Holmes, which I think is quite interesting. As far as continuity goes, the only major continuity is an amethyst on the snuff box that Holmes is using at the beginning of the short story. He states that it's a gift from the King of Bohemia, who we saw in a scandal in Bohemia, which would have occurred earlier in the year that a case of identity occurs. As far as my opinions on the Red-Headed League and a case of identity, I'd like to combine those because they're very quick short stories and they seem relatively obvious to me. I don't think it's that difficult to figure out the cases. It's definitely more the traditional Sherlock Holmes format. They're simpler and more straightforward, but they're also more entertaining. You can see that Doyle's starting to get used to writing in a short story format. They're not perfect and they're not the best Sherlock Holmes short stories by any stretch of the imagination, but they're good. And Doyle is clearly getting better, as we see in the last short story that we'll be talking about in this episode, The Boscombe Valley Mystery. This was published in October of 1891. And it's worth noting that Boscombe Valley is not a real location. Rather, it was adapted from a number of real locations in England by Doyle for this short story. This one was first adapted, actually, in the 1912 silent film series. It was then adapted in the early 1920s film series as well, this one in 1922, was actually in the 1968 Peter Cushing series as well, 1991 episode of the Brett TV series, and of course, many radio productions. This takes place later than the first three short stories we've talked about so far. It takes place in mid-June of 1889, following the sign of the four. Watson was married to Mary at this point. In the story, we're introduced to two pairs of parents and children who live in Boscombe Valley in England, John and Alice Turner, and Charles and James McCarthy. John Turner and Charles McCarthy are thought to be extremely close to each other as they knew each other from their times in Australia. James McCarthy is found near his father Charles's body just after talking with him. He is very much accused of this murder and Lestrade, who we originally met back in a study in Scarlet, is the detective from Scotland Yard on the case, convinced that James did it. Here's the facts that James outlines. He arrived home early. His father didn't know that he was there. He heard his father call out to him, Cooey. It was kind of a, an Australian-style greeting between the two of them. However, after an argument between James and Charles, where Charles wants James to marry Alice, who he's in love with, but he's unable to marry her because he already has been married to a barmaid in England, he then gets into this harsh argument. James storms away, but he hears a cry runs back and sees his father, major head injury, on the ground, dying. He hears something about a rat in his final words. As James is kneeling by his father, trying to see if he's okay in any stretch of the imagination, he notices some gray fabric near the body. However, he turns away, and when he turns back, it's gone. Holmes has been called in by Lestrade because the young man is convinced that he is innocent. Lestrade disagrees, but Holmes is being called into the case anyways. And Holmes thinks that James is, in fact, innocent. Because otherwise, how could he come up with such strong and intricate lies while also completely supposedly forgetting other parts? Alice, who is also very much in love with James, is so thankful that Holmes is there and implores Holmes to help ensure that James is not going to be sentenced for this murder. Holmes first examines the murder site. He notices the rock that was used in the murder, because the grass is 
been bent down beneath it. He's starting to gain some information about a description of the murderer as well, based on footsteps and cigar smoke around the pond area where the murder took place. He starts to talk to Watson about his ideas. He knows about the fact that both were in Australia, and there's an area in Australia called Ballarat that might fit with the rat part that James had heard. He's also gaining some information about the past of John Turner and Charles McCarthy. Therefore, he thinks that based on the description he has of the murderer and based on the deep past between the two, especially with the reference to Ballarat in Australia, Charles McCarthy may have been killed by John Turner. He meets with John Turner, who perfectly meets the description, and asks for an account of what actually happened. According to John Turner, he was part of a gang of highwaymen in Australia called the Ballarat Gang. However, he ended up falling into the wrong hands with Charles McCarthy, and McCarthy knew the truth about how John stole the money. Once both of them ended up moving to England, John was able to use his money to gain some affluence. However, Charles stated that he would tell the truth about John's original activities and how he gained the money in Australia if he didn't give Charles some of the money. Furthermore, John was terrified about his new daughter finding out the truth because her opinion was most important to him. Ultimately, after all this blackmail and Charles trying to gain everything from John, including having his son marry John's daughter, they decided to meet. As such, Charles had called out for John, that cooey call, and ultimately when John heard Charles and James arguing about his daughter like she had no opinion and no autonomy at all, he became so infuriated that when James stormed away, John picked up the rock and killed Charles. He left his coat behind, and as James returned and was kneeling by his father's body, John was quickly able to dash over and grab his coat. Ultimately, Holmes feels bad for John Turner. He committed a murder, but he was also in a very tricky spot. Holmes agrees not to tell the truth about how the murder was occurring unless James was about to be killed. Due to a lack of evidence, James ends up being set free, and the story about what actually occurred in John's past would never come to light for Alice and James. So as far as the story goes, continuity is definitely having a lot more here than in some of the other short stories we've seen. First off, there's a reference in the beginning when Watson is talking to his wife Mary about how many good things Sherlock Holmes's cases have done for him. He even mentions that he gained a wife through the case, a reference to the sign of four. We see Lestrade pop up again, a reference to him back in A Study in Scarlet, the first Sherlock Holmes story. There is a mention of Sherlock Holmes's only failure in the past being Irene Adler in A Study in, Bo or a, sorry, A Scandal in Bohemia. There's direct references to the titles of the two novels that have been written by Watson about Sherlock Holmes as well, The Sign of Four and A Study in Scarlet. As far as my opinion on the story goes, it sure wraps up quite nicely, but the story itself definitely has more intricacies to it than our previous three Sherlock Holmes short stories. You can tell that Doyle is getting much better at writing short stories that have more depth to them. And that's what I think makes it so exciting when we're heading deeper into the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. They're getting really good, and they're showing why Sherlock Holmes started to become so popular in the public eye. Next time, then, we'll be heading into part two of the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. We'll be covering short stories five, six, seven, and eight from this compilation of short stories that were written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle for The Strand. Until next week, though, my name is Ryan, 
Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you in two weeks.